Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Sonarworks. Sonarworks is on a mission to ensure everybody hears music the way it was meant to be, across all devices. Visit sonarworks.com for more info. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Hello, everyone. You know, I'm not sure if you know this, but usually we record these podcasts remotely just because there's no real budget for flying people in to do a podcast or for me to fly out. Every once in a while, I get to do them in person. The episode with Patrick Stump and Sean O'Keefe, that was done in person. The one with Andy Marsh, that was also in person. But generally, these are over the internet. And I think that the ones over the internet Obviously, it's workable. I mean, you've been listening to over 230 episodes done over the internet. But on my end, there's some inherent problems in it because whenever you use the internet, there's an inherent delay. Have you ever been watching the news where they are talking to somebody via satellite? Um, you know, maybe a reporter in a war zone or something. And they talk, and then there's that pause, and then they respond. Well, that happens when I'm recording these episodes. Maybe not quite as exaggerated as what you would see on the news, but it's still there, which makes it a little bit more difficult because I can't read people's body language, and sometimes you end up interrupting each other because... Uh, you're hearing people's words at a different time than when they actually said them. So while they're talking, you think they're being silent. And so there's more editing involved, and it's just in general more of a pain in the ass. Whenever I get the chance to do it in person, I'm going to do it in person from here on out. And this episode is a perfect example of that. Uh, I'm in York, Pennsylvania right now for Nail the Mix. Uh, this is June 2019. And on Nail the Mix, we've got Carson Slovak and Grant McFarlane uh, doing Rivers of Nile and Candlebox. And Brody Utley, the guitar player from Rivers of Nile, who has been on this podcast before, wanted to come be a part of this whole thing. He's a very, very prolific musician who's also, you know, very artistically involved. Not all musicians that are in bands have grand artistic visions or the skills to help realize those visions. Sometimes they're just good at their instrument or good at writing a song, but there are those few people who are, you know, they're good at recording, they're good at arrangement, they just have a vision. I remember when I went to Berkeley this uh, legendary producer named Eddie Kramer. Um, those of you who don't know who Eddie Kramer is, I'm sure you know the Waves plug-in Kramer Pie. Well, that was designed by Eddie Kramer. And Eddie Kramer was a producer who has worked with Led Zeppelin, Jimi Hendrix, you know, the big boys. He came to Berkeley and gave a master class. And this was before I was into production. But I just wanted to go to this master class anyways. And I asked him, what did someone like Jimmy Page or Jimi Hendrix have that was different than your 
average good musician? Because you worked with really good musicians all the time, right? But what was what set those guys apart? And he said that while most good musicians could see 15 feet in front of them, Jimmy Page could see three football fields ahead. Like, he had this great vision for the future, and he knew where to go with things. And he understood, you know, book career-wise and musically, he just had vision. And that's always, in my opinion, the best kind of artist to work with because, you know, you're not playing a guessing game as a producer, but also... Um, you're going to get the best results that way, and they're also the most interesting. Um, now, granted, they got to have both the skills and the vision. Nothing's more annoying than someone who has a grand vision but doesn't have the skills to realize it or the humility to get other people involved who can realize it or the budget or the time, you know. <laughs> it's really, really annoying when that happens, but... Brody is one of those guys who does have the skills. And so it was great to have him here for this episode with his producers. I'm sure you've heard the other podcast episodes I've done with producers and artists, like, you know, like the Patrick Stump and Sean O'Keefe episode I mentioned earlier, or Machine with Chris Adler, uh, Dean Lamb and Dave Otero. The, these are really, really great episodes because... You get to hear about the creation of the art from multiple perspectives because, you know, in general, we know the producer's perspective, uh, but the artist's perspective on what went down is just as important. You can't have one without the other. Oftentimes, a trap, a mental trap that I think producers fall into is of thinking that they are the most important piece of the puzzle. And I don't want to minimize what a producer does, obviously. A terrible producer can take a great band and make them sound like the worst dog shit you've ever heard. You know, and a great producer can take a mediocre band and make an amazing record. But when you put a great artist with a great producer and who have great chemistry with each other, well, the results are magical. And Rivers of Nile have been on quite the upswing after making their most recent record with uh, Carson and Grant. They're really doing something special. And, you know, like, even though at the core they're a death metal band, they're not your average death metal band at all. They go places that death metal just doesn't normally go. They're, they're, a, very, they're a very ahead of the pack type death metal band. And I don't even like calling it death metal because it just seems so limiting. But because there is that much vision involved, I thought it would be really, really cool to do one of these producer-artist episodes coupled with the fact that we're in person, which makes it even better. I had a great time talking to them. We did not just talk about music. We also talked about AI and aviation, all kinds of stuff. But I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. I'll shut up. Here goes. All right. So we're good? All right, cool. How are you guys doing? Great. I'm not good. I know. Why not? Okay, I'm good now. Okay, cool. I'm all right. All right. Well, right. it's been nice podcasting with yep. you guys. Later. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Bye. So, so you're saying off camera that you went on the Concord once? I did. 
Yeah, when I was a little kid. I was on the plane last night. I was talking about how I feel really unfortunate that I didn't get to ride it because I'm an aviation freak. Was it cool oh, or were you yeah, too young awesome. to? No, I do remember it um, pretty vividly and it was awesome. I remember it was like a big deal that we were getting to like ride on it. So It was a big deal. Yeah, it was sick. It was awesome. Could you feel it? when it was going 1,300 miles an hour? Yeah, like you hit, uh, there's like a little um, digital readout at the front of the plane that showed you how fast you were going. And like when you like hit Mach 1 or whatever the hell it is, like it like updated. Jeez. But it, but you couldn't, you're way higher than regular planes do. I think yeah. it's like 50,000 feet or something like that. I think like it's like 60. 60, okay. So there's less air resistance? The, I don't know. Yeah, there is. Um, but also there's less uh, less frame of reference against the ground or anything, so you probably really can't tell no. that you're going that much faster. Yeah. I mean, I remember it being very cool. I did read that uh, there's a plane that they're developing or working on, maybe they're almost done with, L.A. to Tokyo in like two hours. I saw that too. Yeah? How yeah. does that work? I have no idea. I don't know. If, uh, so what I've read is that the problem with supersonic flight is that zoning ordinances and noise ordinances don't really allow for it because of the sonic boom. Mm. Um, I, have you ever heard of sonic boom in real life? Yeah. It's mm. crazy. Yeah. It will, it, sometimes it'll destroy windows, but mm -hmm. at best it'll just rattle people's houses. So uh, they could only they could only go supersonic over the ocean, um, and I think it ended up being not just inconvenient but super expensive. And that's why they haven't done more supersonic airplanes for commercial use. Interesting. Yeah, fascinating to talk about on a recording podcast. Yes. Absolutely. Let's talk more about aviation. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> fine. If uh, if they do make a uh, a supersonic airliner, I'm going to go on it. I would. Love I don't to care what well. the cost is. Would you go to space on commercial? Yeah. Would you? Are we allowed to swear? I think yeah. I would. Okay. Yeah, I definitely would. <clears throat> yeah, I'd go to space. Like if it was affordable. Go there and if stay it was there. affordable, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> go there and stay. Would yeah. you be one of those people? Fuck yeah, dude. You said you're going to stay? Yeah. I'll just stay, <laughs> stay up there. in space. Yeah. Well, did, you, did you hear about those people recently that were signing up for, I don't know if they were, if it was a legit thing, but they were trying out for, to sign up for a one-way trip to Mars, not come back. And lots of people signed up. I'm about it. And the, not astronauts and normies just and people, stuff. But yeah. So you'd do that? If I didn't have kids, I probably would, yeah. Why not? I mean, you would have no interest in coming back? No. Fair enough. <laughs> I can see that. I'll do round trip. Round trip? But yeah. that's I don't think that was an option. Yeah, it wasn't. Yeah. I'm just, no, I'm just good. putting it out there. What about you, Brody? <sighs> Join me, Brody. We I can... mean, it de I think it depends if Taco Bell got there before me. That's a good point, actually. <laughs> good point. You raise a good if point. If there was, like, Taco Bell and coffee, I don't know. I probably I probably would go. Is there weed on Mars? Yeah, that too. In the Martian, he had Vicodin. He yeah. did. He did, but I he mean, ran out. If it's just Matt Damon and a bunch of fucking potatoes, <laughs> I'm not really interested. Yeah. But if there's like, if there's coffee and weed and Taco Bell, I 
and Carson. I mean, I would probably go. Thank yeah. you. Did you see Interstellar the year that The Martian came out? I th- yeah, I did. Yeah. Interstellar, I've seen it like um, like 10 times. Same here. Yeah. Did you think it was funny at all that a similar cast? Oh, with was just it, Matt Damon pops up in the, the middle same of the movie. Well, not basically. just Matt Damon. There were other people that were in Interstellar that were in The Martian and it came out at the same time. So oh, in the who, preview, who I think Jessica it? Chastain, I believe. Okay. Hmm. I, I, I saw The Martian wrong. like once. I just remember seeing the preview, and it was the some of the same people. I was like, "Is this like a prequel or a sequel? <laughs> yeah. What is going on here?" N- had nothing to do with it. Yeah, I liked Interstellar more. Interstellar, Fuck was yeah! Sick. The soundtrack was amazing. Yeah, and uh, have you ever watched the bonus features on the Blu-ray with yes. the Hans yeah. Zimmer making the soundtrack yeah. with that pipe organ? It's amazing. The the reasoning behind it is great. Uh, what he was saying was that, well, first of all, they wanted to use something that they had never used on one of their film scores before uh, in the Chris Nolan, Hans Zimmer collaborations. But also the reason that they chose that pipe organ was because Interstellar is about this technology that's beyond anything. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the next, 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 next level of technology and that's what the that pipe organ was at its time was mm-hmm. the most complex piece of technology that people had ever created that's so a cool connection kind of that's yeah cool. so it was appropriate um and also because i guess of i'm a non-religious person but because of the i guess the religious connotation of a pipe organ and then also of how some of the philosophical yeah. themes in the movie <clears throat> yeah, yeah. It's great. I thought it was very fitting. It was, and it's such a unique sounding uh, score. Yeah, totally. It, it's interesting because normally those kinds of sounds come from huge brass mm-hmm. in scores, at least in Hans Zimmer scores, especially. But they sp- specifically wanted to avoid brass because they had done it. I wouldn't say to death because it was all great, but yeah. the Inception and the Batman movies and all that were just yeah. like brass spectacles. It's a more minimalistic approach. Yeah, but it's huge. I could definitely, that's like one of those, that's like Interstellar is like one of those soundtracks that like no matter where I drop in, like where where on the track listing I drop in, I can, I absolutely know that that's what I'm listening to. Like Mm -hmm. there's like very few soundtracks I think that do that to me. Uh, Another one is the, you know, The Fountain. Yeah. Clint, was it Clint Manzel? Is that his name? He did that. He, He also did like, um, same guy who did stuff for Requiem for a Dream and stuff mm. like he's a guy who works with Darren Aronofsky. Yeah, yeah, like that. A lot of the stuff that he's done as well has an instantly recognizable theme to my ear for some reason. So that Requiem for a Dream music is interesting because you it got really famous, mm-hmm. but then it started. I don't know if you noticed, but for like ten years, it was in every single preview ever for yeah. a dramatic movie. Mm. Yeah, yeah, which I think. I actually heard Darinovsky say that it bummed him out a little bit yeah. because it was so perfect for Requiem for a Dream. And then then it's like in a disaster movie yeah. and stuff like that. It kind of took away the power yeah. of that whole thing. There's another, there's another, it's not a full score, but it's like just another song like that. It's called On the Nature of Daylight. And it's in like every single movie ever. It was, I forget what movie it was originally in. It was a bigger movie. And it was an awesome song when you heard it. You're like, wow, that's like super memorable and specific to this film. And then I've seen it 
in probably a dozen things since then. It's just been reused. It's really weird. You don't remember who wrote it? No, I just remember that it's called On the Nature of Daylight. Um, it's one of those things I'd probably recognize if I heard instantly. it. Instantly. Yeah. It's, it's an instant, like, you would absolutely know if you heard it. I forget who, I forget who wrote it. Um, he's done a lot of stuff. Uh, if you, if anyone, I'm going to look yeah, into look, it now. Definitely look it up. It's on the nature of daylight. It's It's been in so much stuff. If but only we had a device that only we, we could yeah. look this up on. <laughs> I can't think of anything. Yeah, uh, let, let me know. We're technologically limited here. Another one is the theme from 28 Days Later. Yeah. Oh, that's so, is it Godspeed? I'm not sure. That, Godspeed, Godspeed Black, Black Emperor? Emperor did that? I'm pretty sure. Really? really? It was either Godspeed or like explosions in the sky. I'm pretty sure it was Godspeed. The, the like heavy the, one? They have a song, like the scene where Killian Murphy first wakes up and is he doesn't know what's going and then on. He realizes, He's walking around the town. Yeah. That song that's playing through that whole like portion of the movie is Godspeed, I'm pretty sure. Really? Pretty that's pretty why sure. that's probably why Correct I like me that if I'm so wrong, much. Interesting. We can and um on the nature of daylight, it turns out was by Max Richter. Good job, Max. Yeah, yeah, I have no idea who that is, but good job, Max. So, yeah. uh, it's weird. I would have thought that there was some sort of exclusivity or something. It's been in a lot of shows, scores. too. Like, a lot of like ne- Netflix-exclusive stuff and, and whatnot, so I don't know if the licensing works differently for that kind of thing, but I've, I've definitely seen it in probably yeah. 10 or 12 things. Yeah, it's a Godspeed song on is 28 it? Days Later. Damn. That's cool. I like it, that soundtrack even more now. I've seen, if we're talking about the same thing, the same part, I've seen it in lots of different previews now. Yeah, they've used it in some other movies for sure. It. How do you feel about that? I mean, it's great for the composer because the composer, and I guess it makes me happy whenever I hear about someone who writes music mm-hmm. having more income opportunities, but on an art level, it kind of bugs me a little. I see that angle of it. And I I would say that I mostly agree with that angle because for me, when I see a movie like 28 Days Later, for instance, and that song is introduced to me, my brain connects it to that imagery, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it colors that imagery for me emotionally. Like how I watch the movie is very much dictated by the score and what's happening underneath the scene yeah, uh, musically. But when I start seeing that same piece of music pop up in other movies, it's... At first, I'm kind of, you know, of the mindset of like, well, that belongs in that first movie. But it might be interesting to pair that same music that you have this previous association with, uh, with new imagery, and maybe it will produce a completely different emotion for you, you know? so Like the Star Wars theme in a slasher film? Right, exactly. <laughs> that's the perfect example. Yes, yeah, so... That's that's a great inception yeah. in a romantic comedy. I love that comedy. they used that Star Wars mu- music in that new uh, in that new movie, Hereditary. It's really <laughs> really effective. <laughs> the thing is, I often wonder if it's the composer's idea to mm-hmm. do that, or if it's purely a commercial uh, motivation that someone who owns the rights, who's not the composer, is like, "This is cool, cool theme. Mm-hmm. We'll use it for this." And the composer just, you know, deals because they got He's paid getting and getting paid. Check. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it makes perfect sense. But I think it can be interesting. I've seen it. I've seen it done effectively before. Is my point, I guess. So what about something? I mean, you just made the joke about Star Wars, but what about something like 
iconic, like the James Bond theme or something, where it's I so think clearly that. That, if, if it's written specifically for a character mm-hmm. <clears throat> or a specific movie, I think that's a completely different thing. So Jason Bourne suddenly had the James Bond theme? Yeah, that would not work. <laughs> I don't think that would work. Those iconic themes that are written specifically for a character... Like or a franchise like the Star Wars theme or the James Bond theme, obviously that wouldn't work. If you take a Godspeed song and put it in another movie as background music, you know, perhaps it could work. I guess though, but they don't know it's going to be a franchise when they write it. Like True. the James Bond, th- I know that when they made Doctor No, they had they had a tiny budget and they didn't know that it was going to turn into some worldwide phenomenon that lasted over fifty years. They right. He just wrote a theme for that movie and then it got huge so i figure the guy from who wrote the requiem for a dream song theme the famous one was probably thinking this is how i feel about dying from drugs and getting your arm cut off yeah and all the terrible things that happened in that movie yeah i wasn't thinking of uh Timothy Dalton running away from a volcano. Exactly. Or something. Yeah. yeah. No, I did see it in a preview for a Timothy Dalton. Was it not Timothy Dalton? It was Pierce Brosnan. Sorry, I'm getting my bones. Oh, is it Ro- Roger Dalton? Uh, is that the guy's name? No. No, Timothy Dalton. T- Timothy, Timothy Dalton, Dalton okay. was wrong. But Roger I think Moore. Pierce, Roger Moore, yeah. Um, no, he wasn't in a volcano movie. It was Pierce Brosnan uh, was in a volcano Dante's movie. Dante's Peak. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, Dante's Peak. So in the preview to Dante's Peak was the Requiem for a Dream totally. music. <laughs> I just don't think that the composer was thinking I think it comp- Bond running from a volcano. Exactly, yeah. I think it completely depends on the context. Fair know? enough. Um, but like I said, I'm, my first thing when I see stuff like that is just uh, that belongs in that first movie, you know? Mm. Totally. I just saw Rivers of Nile on a yogurt commercial. It was, it was That sick. was probably good. Yeah. What am I still doing here then? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like marketed to like women in their young 30s. Are you going to go buy TV. a Bentley next after that yogurt uh, commercial? Uh, oh, I'd probably yogurt do the, the Rolls-Royce Phantom, but yes. Fair enough. Something along those lines for sure. <laughs> so speaking of Rivers of Nile. Right. You guys know each other, right? Wait, you're in a band, dude? Who are you? How long have you guys known each know. other? Uh, since at least 2009, right? We were just talking about since Carson, how depressingly long ago yeah. we did that first EP. Carson was 27 when he recorded our first EP. He's 48 now? He is 40, I'm 60, 49 now. Please don't age. <laughs> don't be ageist. Yeah, we've known each other for, I guess, 10 or more years. You actually, you guys were both playing in Century... Uh, together that and, and me and Biggs's old thrash band played with you guys at some like skate park. Oh shit! So I you feel guys like were I in another band. That. Yeah. What band? What was it called? Dissian. I it was like fucking totally remember that. Hilariously horrible thrash band. Would that have been like Soundwave. No, it was uh, uh, maybe I don't know. I just remember there was like half pipe behind. I us. yeah, I remember that show specifically. And you guys showed up super late, just looking like. Real, super bummed and like <laughs> and uh big i guess bigs knew you because you recorded dim the lights yeah um and and like there was that whole connection he was like he's like yo amazing like, that's 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 carson you know who did dim the lights and i think that's when i met you local for the first celebrity time. Right? yeah local celebrity shows up with a leather jacket so glasses carson. inside 
Sunglasses. Yeah, yeah, sunglasses. Wow. I'm just a fucking prick, dude. <laughs> ten, yeah, like 10 years I've known these guys pretty much. Yeah. You, I didn't realize that you guys have a long history in bands together. Yeah, Grant and I were in a band at like over 10, well. I mean, I've known you since like 2004. That sounds right. Yeah, that sounds right. You were recording August Burns Red demos while I was still in high school. Yeah, and you had so, your pop punk band. Yeah. And you came in and recorded with me. You were actually one of the first handful of bands I ever recorded. It was your pop punk band, my own band at the time, August Burns Red, who was a local band at the time doing demos. Who? And uh, I just, I don't know. I, don't, I forget. Um, a couple, there are a couple other, my friend Gary's band, Seven Revolutions. You know Gary Conahan? He's in the Irm mm-hmm. group. Um, great dude. Also a very, very good producer, engineer. And um, yeah, man, I, I remember that like it wasn't that long ago, but it was a long it was 15 long years. 15 fucking yeah, years. Yeah, it was a while ago. So you Ugh. guys worked together on an EP when you guys were local? Like the first thing we ever recorded back in 2010, I believe, uh, at the old Grant Street location. Yeah, man. So, yeah. Th- and then you went to Rutan next. Well, so we recorded that EP with Carson, and then we recorded another EP with this dude, Len Carmichael, who uh, I know that name. Yeah, he primarily works with like hardcore bands. I think. I think he's a URM subscriber. <clears throat> yeah, he. I think he is actually. But he recorded our next EP, and then we came back to Atrium Audio and recorded three songs with Grant, which which actually Fuck you, Carson. Yeah, Carson was not Yo, there. What was for I that doing? One. I well, don't know. We didn't work together at that time. Oh, we were just doing our own thing. Yeah. Okay. That yeah. Makes sense. Were you guys signed yet? No, that's okay. what actually ended up getting us signed. Were those three songs that we did with the, with Grant? So which, Grant got you signed, and then you ditched him for Rutan. Oh, Essen- Grant. Essentially, oh, yeah. Grant. Well, well, okay. So, <laughs> so loyal. Wh- what what really happened is. We recorded those songs with Grant, did a music video for one of them. That got us on Metal Blade's radar as well as Rutan's radar. And Rutan, I guess, kind of like, you know, knowing the people at Metal Blade, he worked with us to get us in with Mm -hmm. them. So for our first record, not going to him would have kind of been a direct, you know, fuck you to him. Totally. Um, So we did do our first record with him, which, you know, wasn't, a huge learning experience for us. We were all 20, 19, 21 years old. Like, we were just shitheads. Well, yeah, we were just talking about this. How did you feel uh, working with them? And then I'm sure that you were thinking, if I can get this band signed, I'll get to do the record. Yeah, I think there's always going to be that kind of thought in the back of your head, you know, like, well, I worked with them, so hopefully, you know, they're going to come back and we're going to make more music together and... Sometimes it happens, a lot of times it does, and, you know, there's times where it doesn't, and there's always going to be a part, you know, inside my head where I'm just like, oh, that kind of sucks, like, I, I would really love to do that, but at the same time, like, I don't really, like, it's their choice and their decision, so it's yeah, like... Yeah, you're saying that now, that you're older and more mature and have a well-established career, yeah. but that sounds like when you were first establishing your career, but I guess what I'm getting at is, too, um... No matter how much it bugged you, you obviously didn't ruin your relationship. No, I don't think there's which a, I mean, a lot of people do when that happens. There's no reason for bad blood. I don't know. It's just we've always pretty much been of the mindset that a band 
needs to make their own decisions and trust that the band is making the best decision for where they're at at any given time. Mm-hmm. So you can never, as a producer, take it personally if one band, even if you worked with this band a lot, decides to go try something new. You know, that's their prerogative. That's something that uh, they need to do. And a lot of times, at, at least for bands that uh, I know that I've worked with who have gone on to work with other people as well, even if I wanted to continue working with them, they typically come out of it having learned a lot more as a band from just having that different experience working with someone different in the production capacity. You know, Actually, a perfect example of this, because uh, my old band, This or the Apocalypse, we did, we did an album with Carson, and actually, I guess they did two albums with you. Yeah, um, yeah. Sentinels and Monuments. Right. Uh, <clears throat> well, when I joined the band, we did that album with you, and then I got this other opportunity through like Chris Adler, and, and then we went and worked with Josh Wilbur. So we actually did go and record with somebody else, but then I learned all this you stuff. Learned, I remember you came back from those sessions, and you were like, look at all this stuff that I learned from Josh. And it was awesome, because then it kind of trickled down to me too and I learned some stuff indirectly from well because Josh learned everything from Andy Wallace so that's, really like you pass down yeah. knowledge through these different opportunities you know and, and that's a super mature way to look at it I, um, I guess I'm bringing this up because I see this in the URM group a lot and mm-hmm. I know that me personally it's bugged the shit out of me in the past when uh, when a band was supposed to come back and then didn't right um so I see a lot of people posting about how it's happened and they're really, really bummed about it. Mm-hmm. And I agree with you guys. The, you're, that's the right attitude, 100%. Um, but I, what I'm wondering is how you dealt with, the, uh, dealt with it in the moment. Like, I, I guess I realize that you can tell yourself that stuff, but there's still this emotional... There's got to be sure this yeah. emotional like oh absolutely it Belie- stings a little bit right for for, for example um, if the band August Burns Red like I mentioned before the way I met them was <clears throat> when I first started getting into recording and first started learning about it myself they were like the third or fourth band I ever recorded when they were a local band um, and they were unsigned and they were playing local shows you know and um, we recorded a bunch of demos together and they ended up basically being over over like three or four sessions. They essentially comprised the band's first album that they did for Solid State, Thrill Seeker. And so I essentially did all the pre-pro for that record. Um, and those were the demos that eventually got them signed to Solid State and they did that, that first record with Adam D. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I remember um, I was really hoping, I, I was thinking like, oh, man, I would really love to get this full-length album and have it be, like, my first big thing or whatever um, because this band just got... Like, have it be my first uh, signed band that I recorded, right? And and at the time, and then I heard that they were going to go do the record with Adam D. And at the time, I thought that I was going to be kind of bummed about it, but I was actually real stoked because I was a big Killswitch Engage fan. Mm -hmm. And I knew that they, having become my friends by that point would come back from that experience and give me a whole bunch of information that I could use yeah. to make my own career more, uh, you know, productive. And so, how can you they? tell them not to go do something? Oh, I, mean, I, I, I just remember, like, at yeah. that moment, that was... I remember that specific instance because it was 
still super early, probably within the first year of me starting to record other bands. Um, and uh, it was one of those things that I could have gotten really bummed about. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember being really excited about it. And that kind of set the tone for how I approached those types of things for, for since then, till now. I mean, you can't get... You know, you always be a little bummed if you were trying to really gun for a project and you end up not getting it. Mm-hmm. But I think at the end of the day, um, not being being mature and professional, not burning a bridge, and handling things, um, you know, in a level headed way is always going to be the best option for you. Because yeah, look what happened. Eventually, August Burns Red started <clears throat> coming back, and we've done their last five records. And Brody and Sons. Yeah, and they same done, thing yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think that. There's something to be said for um, maintaining friendly relationships with people, even if, uh, you know, people in bands, even if they end up going and working with someone else in a production capacity, you know, because A, you can learn a lot of stuff, B, you don't burn a bridge or show everybody that you're immature. It's kind of like that whole like business 101, don't let emotions dictate a business yeah. decision, you know? You kind of have to but even wrangle all, that in your head. Exactly, totally. but even strate- taking all the strategic you know, thinking away from it, uh, I just think that if you approach those types of situations with that mindset, you're going to have a more positive outcome, you know, and you're mm-hmm. going to learn more. So it's, I do think, though, for people starting out, it's easier said than done. Sure. Because when you are in a situation where you're like struggling and you finally see the light at the end of the tunnel. Like I could be getting this band signed that are my friends. Like this could finally be how I break through and can quit delivering pizza or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, It can be kind of, it could be crushing if you look at it the wrong way. Yeah. Could be. Well, here's how, here's a really easy way to look at that. Uh, tell yourself in those instances, is this the last album that this band is ever going to make? And if the answer is no, then you have a chance to do an album down the road. And if the answer is yes, then they're probably not a band in a position where it's going to benefit you anyway. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a great way to look at it. And what's funny is I see a lot of people getting bummed about it with bands that don't matter. Right, yeah, of course. Really bad local bands went to the other studio that has a board is or because they care about that yeah, for some weird reason. It's silly um, to get sour about stuff like that. Totally. So, Brody, obviously they were cool enough about it that you came back, but I imagine for you, a young death metal band working with Rutan, because, uh, I mean, I remember Rutan and Morbid Angel when I was like 15 or 16. Yeah. I think I'm older than you. Like, Rutan was <clears throat> a fucking hero. I remember... I remember him being the dude in Morbid Angel yep. that had the great, great solos, and then he's so he, sick. Dude. Yeah, and then he started recording. The recordings were not so good at first, but then they got better and yeah. better and better. Mm-hmm. And he just was—he's just a legend. So I'm sure for you guys, getting to go with Rutan was just like wow. Yeah, it was horrifying. Like, as in <laughs> intimidating. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We were... I can imagine. Like I said, 19, 20, 21 years old. First record on a record label. We were completely underprepared. <laughs> you know, we had watched all of the Cannibal Corpse DVDs and, and all the, you know, 
Mana Studios videos on YouTube and, and you know, saw how, you know, all these legendary record, death metal records have been recorded there. And we thought like, yeah, it's exactly how it's going to go for us. We're just going to go in there and, <laughs> and do it, you know, like it's, it's going to be great. And, you know, while it was, um, you know, it was like definitely one of the biggest learning experiences of my entire life. Uh, I am glad. I am glad that I did it. That it happened, because uh, I don't think without that first record being recorded with Eric, that I would have made the decisions, or we would have made the decisions that we've made as a band since then. I mean, we took a lot away from of his taskmaster, master-like tendencies. Yeah, and I think just <clears throat> it showed us a lot about how things really worked in reality versus how we saw them on a DVD, for example. Like, at that point, we had heard Kill from Cannibal Corpse and Evisceration Plague, you know, and, like, we thought that we're going to go in there and we're just going to get a record like that, you know? Just and like that. Just like that, you know, and... Cook me up one of those. <laughs> right, exactly. And we're it was our first record on, you know, and we're a no, nobody death metal band. So as you can imagine, the budget was tiny, right? We had <clears> to sure be... sure it was, like, $3,000 or it something. Was, I think it was like five. I think it was five. Damn. Yeah. And, Big uh, money. Yeah. And so we went, we went in there and we had to do that whole record in two weeks. Right? No. So we didn't do anything yeah, before. Better be ready. And we weren't. Like we, whereas with these guys, I've done the guitar and the bass and everything on my own and brought it to them. And then we do the record from there at their studio. On that first record, we didn't have anything before we went in. We had the, the album written and some shitty pre-production, and that was about it. And we had two weeks to make a record, and we thought we were just going to go in there and shit out a uh, kill-quality record or evisceration-plague-quality record. And, you know, those records took two months to make, mm -hmm. you know, because they had real budgets, and they were real professionals, and we were absolutely not that. And and it was definitely a, a huge learning experience for us. We... We lost two band members as a result of that recording session. What it's caused what just, caused them to leave? Just the absolute like like the realization of them having to play their parts. Our you know our to that standard. Our original drummer, those sessions like, crushed him because, as you can imagine, Eric Rutan, being a guy who still works with tape a lot even when he's recording uh, on the Goat Whore records and whatnot that he's done in the last few years. Uh, and I think he did, I think he did the last Hate Eternal record to tape, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, knowing how he is with, you know, expecting performances out of people just, you know, like that, you know, to the standard that you would to, you know, be recording to tape, he takes that into the digital realm as well. And for our drummer who was 19 years old, we were all completely unprepared. All right, go. You, know? <laughs> you can fix that, right? <laughs> well, and that's the other thing is that because we had done records with these guys before and we saw how like, oh, well, yeah, we can do drum comps and then punch this in and then, you know, slide this over and whatever. We thought that's just how it was everywhere, you know? So we go to Eric who doesn't really do any of that stuff and we absolutely needed it. And, uh, it really like taught us a lot about ourselves as as people and players. Um, so, like I said, it was it was a very difficult time. But D describe what 
like an average crushing guitar session would be like? Well, just give us a little. Uh, okay, so there. Little description. Believe it or not, like one of the slower songs on that record and easier songs to play on that record was one of the ones that took the longest. It was a song called "Soil and Seed," and uh, it was a very slow grooving Morbid Angel kind of tune. Uh, and we're recording with Eric hilariously, right? So uh, there was a lot of octaves, you know, in that song. And we tune very low down to F sharp on seven strings. So you can imagine the intonation issues we have. And Eric's ear for, you know, tuning issues tuning Nazi. Is, is insane. And uh, there were, you know, for that song in particular, I remember we spent six, seven hours on one section of that one song on guitars and it was like three or four like octave chords maybe mm -hmm. that was that was just how it was and he would uh he started we would start our sessions at i think noon or one in the afternoon and go until whenever because he said that death metal doesn't you don't record death metal during daylight or something <laughs> like that so our <laughs> we were just fried like you our, didn't know that <laughs> no i, I Dude, didn't that's but like the unwritten rule man. yeah you that's know common but, knowledge yeah you know like we were all whacked out during those sessions because of the schedule but like in hindsight it's kind of cool like that there's still somebody that's doing shit that way i mean he has a very specific sound like when you go to eric like you know what you're getting um i think that's awesome yeah, yeah i think it's, it's a real producer i think it's cool it, it has a very from what I've read of how things used to be like at, at Mara Sound Studios and like all of the old school studios, it's still very much like that at Mana Studios. And I, you know, I still talk to Eric regularly. I mean, I saw him when he came through with Cannibal Corpse a couple of months ago. Um, we've toured with Hate Eternal since then. We've stayed, you know, in touch and good friends. And it's kind of funny to joke with him about, because, uh, you know, we use Kempers and stuff and we've recorded records that have a more <laughs> modern sound to him. So he always busts our balls about certain things and we give him shit for being an old man and all that. So it's it's kind of funny how our relationship has uh, you know, continued over the years. We're still good friends and I I'm very glad to have done that record with him because it taught us a lot about what to do next. You it know was an, it was a really important experience, I would say. Absolutely. Just I mean for you guys as a band. Sounds like boot camp. It, it absolutely was. That's exactly what it was. And uh, I wouldn't have done it any differently. I mean, maybe I would have, but I can't have done it any differently. So here we are. So well, when you got them back, were they like a changed band? I mean, it was definitely a different, a different lineup. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, you could tell that they've they'd learned a whole lot, and so had we. Mm -hmm. You know, in that time. Yeah, I mean, we we both had changed so much. I mean, you know, I think Brody came in with with at least really solid pre-production if not tracks that we were using at that point right yeah like, i tracked the whole record guitar and bass on on monarchy so yeah. yeah so it was just a different level of preparation and you know musicianship and, and expectations and versus yeah. reality and i learned my lesson like through the eric thing you know i learned a lot of especially a lot about tuning and intonation like truly being in tune i went out and bought like a mechanical strobe tuner i got all crazy with that for a while and uh you know applying that to what i went on to do with these guys and with other projects like 
that's like definitely one of the most important things that I took away from that. Cause so what are some of the things just for guitar players out there that you changed up tuning for intonation and tuning that just became part of how you work that you didn't do previous? Uh, I guess just like if I'm recording a section, you know, that's up higher on the neck, tuning the guitar, if I'm having intonation issues, because we do tune very low, uh, tuning the guitar for that riff, right? So if I'm playing a, a power chord up on the, or an octave chord up on, you know, the ninth fret or whatever, and it's just in tune when it's open, it's obviously not going to be in tune when you're up there perfectly. So a lot of times what I'll do is, you know, if I have a section that's up a little higher or has a lot of octaves in it, I'll, you know, stop recording and I'll tune the guitar for that specific section uh, to a strobe tuner, which I didn't know anything about strobe tuners when I, when we went in for our first record and uh, or let alone intonation at all, really. Crucial. Yeah, crucial. And, uh, you know, now you have stuff like the... Uh, Evertune? The Evertune bridges, which I've never worked with, but it looks like like a godsend for rhythm tracking. Oh, it makes rhythm tracking go way faster. And if they're, and typically <clears throat> if there are bendy parts, we'll just punch those in yeah. afterwards, you know, because mm -hmm. you can set the guitar up to bend. But yeah. when it's in bend stop mode, it just makes everything fly. Just from, so from a logistical, uh, you know, uh, time saving perspective, it is definitely a godsend. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I think that the intonation stuff in particular and like string gauges, like using like a like a 22p G string, which I never would have done before. I probably would have used like a 15 or a 17, you know, just to like have like the tuning stability, you know, for such a low tuning, like just stuff like that that I never would have thought of. Picks. Having the right scale length. Scale length. I mean, luckily um, we have like a deal with Kiesel guitars and they make 27 inch scales. So that's super friendly for our tuning. Using different picks than you would use live, like the Dunlop, uh, the green Dunlop picks, the Tortex ones. Normally I would use Jazz 3 picks live, but using them on a record just, it just sounds Thank better. Thank you for saying that. We just released a guitar course. Yeah. We made it with Andrew Wade that, uh -huh. uh, you know, it's called Ultimate Guitar Production and that's what it is. It goes from set up all the way through mixing everything between and there's a lot of sections about stuff like that like mm -hmm. picks mm -hmm. where there's shootouts and lots of shootouts of like eight different picks and string brands string gauges like all that just to show that mm -hmm. it makes a huge difference and what we found was interesting was i guess sometimes i get you it's sometimes I take this stuff for granted just because I've done it for so long. It's just like obviously different picks matter. Mm -hmm. uh, you shouldn't what you use live because it feels best isn't necessarily what's going to sound best. I just t sometimes I take it for granted, and we have so many URM students who've been around for so long that they know that. So sometimes, and I need to keep reminding myself of this. Some lots of people don't know this yet, and we got a lot of people who were like, "Fuck you! I use this, and you're not going to tell me to tr to use this other pick. I use this pick." Then they'd watch the shootouts and try it, mm -hmm. and be like, "Whoops, I was an asshole." <laughs> yeah, I, I think that <laughs> basically, I think that in the genre that we play, the jazz three pick has kind of become the standard for the metal dude. And for live, it, it's fine, but I've definitely like ran some tests myself and compared to like a big, big old green Tortex, 
there's there's just no competition like it just there's something about those transients that just like pop in a way sicker way on just the the 88s i think i think that's what dimebag used for his like entire career were the green 88 tortexes mm-hmm. and there's just something about those picks that sound to me better than you know those those prime tone picks like any any picks that like we had i don't know like 12 or 15 different kinds of picks and for whatever reason the old Tortex is one out. You'll burn through them like crazy because it's Tortex, but they just sound better for whatever reason. I don't know. And you yep. use the Jazz 3s just for comfort live? Yeah, and okay. for solos or whatever. I've actually switched over to uh, Dunlop released a Tortex Flow pick recently, mm-hmm. which I've found is kind of like the best of both worlds. Uh, you get that like really easy rolling in between strings like you get with the Jazz 3s, but you also get the nasty like pick attack of the the big green tour texas so i've been using those lately um live and for recording and i really like them but yeah just stuff like that that i never thought about before through the rutan experience it really like turned you know turned my eyes inward to myself like and taught me a lot about what i was doing wrong and what i could do from there on out made you do some soul searching some soul searching you know the other, about to say, Grant. the other thing to point out is just like even once you have that pick choice and the guitar strings and the tuning and, and the amp and everything, if you hand all that stuff to another guitar player, then it sounds completely different. Absolutely. Completely. So the playing, yeah. you know, obviously has a big hand in that too. If you put me on John Petrucci's rig. Yeah. Then it sounds like John Petrucci. Exactly like John Petrucci. That's, I mean, you know, he gave me his rig and I... Sub for him one night and you never sounded better. Sn- right? Yeah, he never sounded better. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's it's fun. It's I mean I think it's the same with uh, with drums. Oh yeah. And bass too. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, Cold Chamber was recording at my old studio, and I had to do a project that was scheduled before them, but it just so happened that Cold Chamber was coming in. And I agreed to let them use my place. I wasn't the one recording Gold Chamber, but I had this other thing planned. Is that and, Mark? Yeah, okay. Mark did it. And so uh, I was like, look, you can use my drum room, but I have to record this. I can't. Like, this band is driving from California. This has been booked for six months. Uh, this is my studio. I'm using it. Let's figure something out. Cold Chamber were cool enough to allow us to just use their set. With the... Uh, condition that nothing got moved. Um, so nothing got moved. So the drummer from the other band was was cool enough too to just be like, all right, that's fine. We'll use that set. It, it is what it is. And I find most drummers can adjust. Mm-hmm. If they're good drummers, they can adjust. They have to live all the time. Yeah. So anyways, same setup, same microphones, same same. Mm-hmm. sounded radically different. Oh, yeah. And I've had that experience lots of times. It's not just guitars. That that whole thing about the tone is in the hands is, is so, so true. Yep. Really, it really is. Chris, uh, the guitar player in Grant and Carson's band, he had a Mesa Boogie Mark V for a while, and I remember him telling me that he set his up just like John Petrucci set his up in all of the Mesa videos that he does demos for. And it sounded fucking horrible when Chris played it. Like it's like, <laughs> well, that makes sense. Well, I mean, it does make it makes sense. Perfect but sense. Uh, yeah, I mean, that just goes to show you, Chris, like, what they're saying is, yeah, we're just kidding, Chris. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, it goes to show you. I mean, 
John Bashushi can make it sound, you know, like like a dream, and then give it to Chris or anyone else. And that's see, that's the interesting thing to me about um, all these guitar tone packs that are really popular now. Just mm-hmm. especially with, with the Kemper and everyone selling Kemper packs, and we sold a Kemper pack. Um, it's interesting to see how a lot of those tones are based on a specific person's playing. Yeah, yeah. and then someone buys them because they're marketed to like, oh, this is that guy's tone. But then they play it, and it sounds completely different. different Absolutely. You know? But, you know, obviously there's some wiggle room there. You can tweak them and everything. But uh, it's interesting to me um, to see different people's opinions of some of these tone packs. Like, some people love them, some people hate them for that specific reason. I mean, I feel like it's the mm-hmm. same almost as, like, I'm going to buy Mariah Carey's microphone, so I should sound <laughs> like her, right? Like it is, <laughs> I thought you did. Yeah. You do sound exactly like Mariah look Carey. Like her I've too. got her range. You do. Pretty look, you are a striking resemblance to Mariah Carey. If the, I actually sold, before URM really got going, I had UKM with uh, Finn, our marketing guy. It was Unstoppable Killing Machine. And uh, that's probably a good name to these to days. Change? To change? No. <laughs> well, we changed it because yeah. uh, when we changed it to recording, uh, that's a Terminator reference, right? It was just a cool name. Okay, but not a cool name for an education company. Yeah. I was so, say. Um, but we sold tone packs. This was like in 2015. We did one with John Brown for Monuments, and we it, he did not recreate his tones. He used the actual tones because he. Uh, was using Line 6 stuff at that time. So his actual tones just exported from from his software uh, that were on his records and they used live and sound amazing, amazing when he plays. Yeah. Because he's got gorilla hands. He's incredible. Um, but he plays super low gain, like super low gain. It's almost like overdriven tone it's almost not distortion distortion it's almost it's not high gain and any normal human i mean maybe hetfield could make it sound cool because he's (laughs) got that right hand but most normal human guitar players would play it and be like what is this shit Mm -hmm. (laughs) i know that when i played it i was like really this is it yeah but it was the actual it was the actual tone and i've also noticed that we've been using kemper for a long time Whenever I tried to use a tone that somebody else got, just wouldn't. It's the same for me. I mean, sometimes yeah. it might work. It might, but that's that's more luck of the draw. In general, that's not even really what it was intended for. No. It was intended for people to be able to capture exactly. a really great tone in the moment, so that if the mic gets knocked or the band wants to go on tour and recreate their tones, or you have to reamp it, or you have an album that's done over multiple periods of time mm-hmm. yeah. that you have this tool that mitigates that problem. It wasn't meant for guitar player X to take no. guitar player Y's tone. It doesn't work that way. No. It, takes, it never has. It takes everything into consideration, like your strings, your tuning, your playing style, your, like, literally everything in your signal chain, it it takes that into consideration. And, and same with me, like, anytime I've used another person's profile... There are a few, especially like some of the lower gain stuff where it gets close, but there's always something just not right about it, which is why we, like, at least since working with these guys, every time we get a tone on a record that we like, we instantly profile it so we have it and, like, you know, it's just there. But, yeah, same thing. Like, anytime anyone's 
sent me their profiles, I've always been kind of bummed because it's something missing. I don't know. I remember getting the Keith Merrow ones, and Keith is a tone master. Um, I got them and was like, no offense, Keith. That, like when he plays them, yeah. they sound incredible. Yeah. I remember getting those, or then I got Ola's, and I was like, "What's going on?" I mean, we just had Ola on Nell the Mix uh, for the Haunted, and yeah. man, his tone—I don't know if you heard that one. I have on actually. That, so dude, that tone is yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. It sounds amazing. And, yeah, it, unbelievable. He's an unbelievable tone guitar player. Uh, but I would play on his profiles and be like. I don't know. It doesn't sound like him. I wonder why. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so because they're not profiling his hands or his brain. Yeah. 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 The, Pretty soon we'll be able to do that. We'll get there. Yeah. And then the... the and 20 uh, years from now. Cyborg apocalypse will be upon us. Skynet. It'll be Hopefully. interesting to see how music production changes when that happens. Yeah, it will be. It'll <laughs> be interesting. Well, as, when computers can figure out creativity... Then I'll worry. They're kind of hey, there. They're almost there. Hey, I, honestly, not to be all tinfoil hat and stuff, but like this is upon us. You know. I don't know. I, I've I I don't I don't know. I really don't know. But they, I've heard people say that it's not even close. So they've made um, deep heard, fakes, man. Yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I but that's the but that's fulfilling a certain. That's like a certain task. Yeah, the deep fake thing. It's yeah. not like thinking of it on its own. So I know I'm pretty sure. I'm sure someone will listen to this and like correct me or something. I don't remember the name of the program, but apparently there's an, a like kind of uh, there's an algorithm that can essentially write symphonies in the style of any of the famous composers, and it, it's it has stumped. Uh, or it has fooled uh, world-class experts on this. I'd like to it, see that. It is just like uh, you put into the computer, write something that sounds like Bach, right? And it'll do something, and it's a completely original piece, but it sounds like Bach, and experts have been fooled. The ones I've heard haven't sounded that great. Like, you remember the one? I, this is just an article. You remember I've the never one that was going around? read it. Or listen to it. Do you remember the one that was going around with Arkspire, actually, about a few oh, yeah, months I, ago? I saw that, yeah. It wasn't good. No. What was it? It was, so it was this AI learning death metal. And it, it like, I guess it analyzed a bunch of Arkspire tunes and then randomly generated new Arkspire tunes. And it was, occasionally you'd get a cool part. How was the mix? Was it sick? It, <laughs> I mean, it, it was, I think it was... Sounded like Arkspire, right on. But it was it just it sounded kind of stupid though. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I've I I don't know enough about this. But what I've seen is that a lot of the really smart people who work on it are saying that what they're good at is doing specific tasks. So when you see like the that robot doing the backflips or oh, no the way. trapeze acts, that that's. That's horrifying. the one thing they do. That's that's, that's what they're boss and dynamics. Yes, yeah. that's yeah. what they're doing with their program to do. They're not like T two thousands that are thinking for themselves and have a purpose. They're just machines Ugh. that are doing something really cool. That fucking There's robot dog, the thing. Google dog things. <laughs> that that thing's yeah, terrifying. Get away from me. Have you seen the Black Mirror episode with the fucking robot no. dog chasing the woman? It's like no. black and white. It's no. a sick episode. No thanks. <laughs> but what's that's coming the, up. What's the Google dog? It's it's this. Do you want to explain it? It's, it's what you're talking about. Go for it. It's just this quadruped robot thing that can't 
be. But it's a real, real thing. Like you, you can, can buy. knock it over. You can, you can like shove, kick like it. If you kick it or shove it, it oh just, that it just goes. It's oh, the, like, it the makes Boston this, Dynamics. Yeah, thing? it makes. Oh, yeah. it makes this horrifying sound that I, I'm just like that's this, this is it. This is the end of humanity. <laughs> uh, that sound. So yeah, it's it's. It, that sound is it. That, that sound is, is the, the is the the bell tolling of of a new age, <laughs> but I think that, and maybe, I don't know. Maybe it's because we don't know yet. But I feel like, even if AI gets to the point where it, it can create, you know, art or music or do production on the level that human being can, I feel like it's always going to be pulling from examples that were created by humans because. I think no matter how far down the line we get with AI, you're probably not going to be able to simulate something like childhood trauma or, yep. you know, like the loss of a, a loved one or a divorce. Right. Until you have a, right. a robot Until, or an AI that you're, right. you're raising from birth, right? And, and, and yeah. right. it creates all those experiences. Uh, until an artificial intelligence achieves true sentience. Right. You won't get that. But once it does, then arguably yeah. it has far rights. Off from that. And there's actually, uh, there's a great book that I just re I read it twice, actually. Um, it's called uh, Homo Deus. Mm. It's by mm. Noel Harari. He's the guy who wrote Sapiens which is kind of like a uh, history of human civilization and Homo Deus is kind of his follow-up and it's his speculation on what is to come. And it, it there's a lot of really eye-opening things in that. I mean, I can't even begin to paraphrase any portions of it, but it's definitely a good read. So if if that, stuff like that interests you about... It, it does. I just don't, I just don't think it's as bad as people think yet. Not yet. Not yet. But we'll get there if we don't blow ourselves up first, I'm sure. Yeah, probably not in our lifetime, lifetimes, though. Yeah, maybe not. Hopefully. Um, <laughs> I mean, I really hope it. that we don't, like, achieve true sentient AI because, I, I mean, you know, depending on how much control we have, mm -hmm. how, how, who's to say that they can't control us? And it's a T2 type of scenario. But why would they want to? Need why to wouldn't they want to? Your motorcycle. <laughs> Need to close your boots on your motorcycle. <laughs> um, well... I watched if that it recently, views, it pretty If cool. it views humanity as a threat, and if you think about it, I mean, we are a pretty awful species. You know, we do kill everything, and uh, we're oh. the most destructive species on the face of the earth. Well, if it starts to feel that way, just take out its battery pack. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? I think it will probably... Throw some water on that, it. That'll yeah. probably do it. I think, I think that like, the one thing that I would definitely want to know once we have AI reaching... You know, its own self awareness is 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 it Kemper fractal or line six? Which is best? That's a good. You good know what point. I mean? I don't I know. It'll I, have to know. I the age old argument: like Kemper, Kemper will, or Axe Effects. Kemper will eventually achieve sentience and just kill Axe Effects. No, I just mean like, will there be an AI that will be able to give the correct give answer. the correct answer? Oh. Yeah, <laughs> Kemper or Axe Effects. That's a really good question. It's the age old question. Which do you prefer? I like. I mean, Kemper for sure. All right. I mean, look at the facts here. <laughs> Kemper is on hardware revision number zero. Every update that that company has had has been software based. They're still on the original hardware piece, and the shit sounds amazing. Sounds like you've made up your mind. I have. Yeah. <laughs> But, I don't know, Fractal has, 
you know, what, five hardware revisions at this point. I think it's kind of, I don't know if it's better or not. I just think it's kind of cool that Kemper got it right the first time. I think it's two different two different pieces for two different purposes. Yeah. I mean, creating a tone from scratch with an Axe FX is a completely different thing than capturing an existing tone with a Kemper. Yeah. yeah. So to me, that's why they're I sort of separate separate units for different purposes. I'm also but. very stupid, and uh, <laughs> that's that's. Why I like I how this that. became like the Joe Rogan podcast for a minute. Did it? Yeah. Hey, he's, All this AI he's, got, he's got he's got a great podcast. Yeah. I actually, I don't know. Uh, I actually had an astrophysicist on here. Really? It's coming out today. Uh, he measures the the sound that uh, planets make. and Wild. Yeah, it's Whoa. really wild. That's why I had him on, because I guess th- there's some link to audio engineering. I also just wanted a chance to talk to someone way smarter than me. That's real sick. But, uh, but yeah, we, we're starting to go in weird directions. I just, just read because. that book, Astrophysics, for people in a hurry. I read that too. Yeah. How is it's it? Re- it's good. It's good. It's great. Is it for people in a hurry, or do you actually Yeah, have you're to be in a smart? hurry. It's Neil, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Oh, okay. I like I like that episode that you guys did with. Who was the, the woman that she Susan Rogers? Yeah, yeah. That was a sick episode. Yeah, that was really sick, and I love talking to people that smart um, because I don't have to do much. Yeah, <laughs> I just have to. I just basically it's like riding a wild horse. I didn't need to make sure it stays on track. Yeah, but really, you just. Let him go. Let him go. Yeah. Just the part where awesome. she, the part where she was talking about taking like a group of people who are theoretic like as far as music theory goes, they have no idea what's going on, just you know, general listeners, and then you have another group where um people like do have a lot of uh knowledge on music theory. Um and like when you play them the same thing, like I guess there's like only like a five percent variance and like how music is interpreted by people who don't know what's going on theoretically versus people who do. It's like such a, a small margin of it, error. It's really interesting. I, I was actually talking to Jesse Cannon about this a couple of days ago um, when I was stranded in Florida. Um, he used to work with Ross Robinson, yeah. and Ross likes to have lots of people in the control room at all times, like a party, like girlfriends, friends, like, Every, the whole band, which is the farthest thing from how I would ever want to work in my life. Yeah. But he likes it to be a community thing. Um, and if, like, the bassist's girlfriend says something, like, that sounds weird or whatever, he'll listen to them and takes that into consideration, which is, I thought was really interesting because lots of musicians and producers do not, take into consideration what any person not in the project yeah. or not qualified qualified yeah. say but what he does actually fits in line with what Susan yeah. Rogers was saying that pe- non-trained music people just the consumers actually have just almost as sophisticated of a at least reaction they're yeah. just going to hear music. it differently yeah. and have different emotional reaction to things uh, uh, objectivity is one of the most important things i think in audio and music production. So if you get someone who doesn't know any of the technical stuff and is completely objective to weigh in, then that's valuable feedback, you know? Do you guys, do you guys like having a bunch of people I, in the control? From, all right, so from a workflow perspective, that would definitely not work God, for me. I hate it when insane. people are behind me yapping and mm-hmm. or, you know, it, it's super 
distracting. So I, I actually, the less people in the control room, like if you don't need to be there or if you're not offering input or something, I like it like more minimal. But I do like showing the music or the mix or in process or whatever to people who are objective. And that's actually one of the things that I think makes um, our workflow, Grant and my workflow, work pretty well because we're in separate rooms all the time. So we retain relative objectivity from what the other person's doing. Mm -hmm. So Grant can walk into my room after a couple hours of us both tracking and give us his input and vice versa, and it works really well. But the actual process of tracking, I, I definitely prefer less people. Yeah, it would make me crazy. <laughs> that is really interesting, though. Does, it is, right? Does he... I'm guessing that he doesn't, like, prep them with this, you know, hey, I, I'm looking for your feedback. He just... No. He just doesn't mind. No, no, no. He, tells, yeah. he tells people, he tells the band and his engineers to apparently to bring people. Just like it's yeah. a thing. It's a known thing. It, this is going to be like a fun time. And Is that just while he's mixing? I think it's the whole time. Mm. Except for, um, you know, maybe specific situations where... Yeah. It's not, but yeah. apparently it would, drive me nuts. Yeah, it would drive me nuts too. I can't handle. I can't handle it when the whole band is in the room. You yeah. know, I it, could see for, I could see from depending on what kind of record it is. I could see if you had people there just for mixing. That that might add some interesting flavors to the mix. Maybe like if you're making a more psychedelic record or whatever, or a stranger kind of record. A bunch of people smoking weed in a room together might, you know, a good idea might pop up or something like that. Just for mixing, though, Absolutely. but for but for for tracking or any of that stuff, like probably not. I don't know. I feel like they would just get in the way. So, but as far especially as especially for the kind of music you make, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's uh, you know the the tracking process and editing process. It's tedious, you know. But I mean, when me and Carson were. I mean, he was mixing the record, and I was kind of sitting there the whole time at the end. Like, I don't know. I had a lot of fun during those days. It was great. Like, we had I thought that of, was a very creative yeah, process. Yeah, it was, it, it was a very, like, uh, like in-the-moment feeling sort of thing. It wasn't, it wasn't like, a, a clinical environment or anything. I feel like we got a lot of good ideas out for the, for the mixing of the record and, you know, shared ideas with one another. So I think I, there's time and place for both. Yeah, both and I think also an important element of that is just... Uh, you know, ask the artist, you being open-minded. And yeah. me, ask the guy mixing it, like, being open-minded as well. And, yeah. you know, if you have a, a good collaborative rapport, I suppose, then that will lead to more, you know, interesting product. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a big part of it is having the artist being open to suggestions. Sure. Because I know guys that are just absolutely closed off from that kind of thing, but... Uh, even though I write most of the music for the band, I'm usually not attached to anything. Like if someone has something, you know, that they want to bring to the table, you know, even if they haven't been involved with the writing process from the beginning, I'm usually like completely open to it. I mean, me and Carson collaborated on one track on this record and it's like probably my f favorite song on the record. It's like an, just like really heavy kind of nine inch nails sort of s song. And when I brought it, to the studio, it was basically just an acoustic guitar uh, and drum song. Right. And Carson, you know, we both have, 
we're both big Trent Reznor fans and just kind of went down a rabbit hole talking about that. And the whole, the song took like a whole different like turn it like was after sick. that. Yeah, it was I awesome. I love where it ended up. But that's a, a great example because like we, neither of us knew kind of where it was going to go no. and we just kind of let it do its thing. Yeah. And it, like I said, it's one of my favorite songs on the record. Yeah, and same. same thing with the vocal production, the way that they run their, their studio is, I think it's really cool because Grant will, well, at least at the old location, uh, Grant would be upstairs doing vocals with half of the band and I would be downstairs with Carson, you know, working on whatever. And I would go upstairs after four or five hours and they would have a whole song done that I had literally never heard, you know, vocals on. And that would allow me to like hear things from an objective point of view. Uh, especially on this last record because we incorporated clean singing, which was never something that we did before and is oftentimes a, you know, a source of debate in the death metal community. Mm -hmm. uh, so I didn't know how I was going to feel about that because Biggs, our bassist, who is also our lyricist, he told me we were going to be doing clean vocals on the record and I was instantly kind of like, huh. Oh, are we gonna do this? Is we gonna be one of those bands? It's kind of a scary thing. <laughs> yeah, it, but it's so silly because it's not. And like, I went upstairs the one day, never having heard clean vocals on our music. And Grant hits the space bar, and I'm like, "Oh yeah, of course." And that's the song that is this month's nail the mix. Yeah. So it was, it was cool being able to walk into that situation having never heard it. And then hearing all of a sudden this song with tons of clean singing on it. So it was cool. Hell that yeah. could go either way. Oh, absolutely. Death metal band. They just they just happened to nail it. And yeah. I think Grant has a really good ear for building, you know, whether it's choruses or, or you know, harmonies or whatever. Like he has a really good ear for that kind of thing. And I think him and, and Biggs and Jake, our vocalist, worked really well together uh, to to do what what ended up being on the record. And I think the fact that we had never done it before, having Grant in the room who's worked on a lot of records before where, you know, he's had to, you know, build melodies and harmonies and stuff like that. I think that was an incredibly, he was an incredibly useful part uh, for the, the making of the record. I think it just helps have that objective party no yeah. matter what. Because obviously you guys... You, you like live in a van or like in a yeah. room together for so long, you're going to butt heads creatively on a lot of stuff. Yeah. So you sort of need that other person to step in and be like, let's, let's figure this out. Yeah, for sure. And I think that works in any scenario. Yeah. Their process is so sick. I mean, I've talked to a lot of friends who have recorded with other people and it's usually just like one person and, you know, they're pretty much doing everything. And I think it's cool that they have the system worked out that they do because it allows them to be, you know, uh, outside of the box and then come into the box whenever they want to. And work at what they're best at. What What is it you don't like about recording vocals? I wouldn't say... Because you told me that you're not, that it's so not my your thing. It's not my thing at all. Um, I've recorded plenty of vocals in the past because I was recording before Grant and I started recording together. Um, it's not that I dislike it. It's that it's my least favorite part of the process. Same here. And Grant is just mm. extremely good at it. So it was just kind of, you know, this is how this relationship works. And it and yeah. it benefits both of us. He plays to his strength. I play to my strength. You know, when we're both happy, we save time. Works. So it For me, it's just that I don't, I don't know. Like, 
I would hear things for other instruments, like it come to me. Mm-hmm. It's just I get inspired by it and want to do it. And with vocals, it would always just be like, well, I'm doing it because mm-hmm. we have to record vocals. Right. But it wouldn't, I don't know, the light, the, the, the switch just wouldn't really come on for vocals mm-hmm. in the same way as everything else. Yeah, that's it's the same thing for me. It, it's, it's just my, and I don't know if it's for any really specific reason. It's just kind of my least, it's, it had always been my least favorite part of the whole process. I know why. I hate lyrics. <laughs> so. lyrics are yeah that's that's the thing too is that um a song that i've been in scenarios before where i thought the song was really great and then the vocals come in and the lyrics just completely ruin it for me you know yeah but it, then you have the guy's girlfriend sitting in the back of the room who says i love that part right like it can, you're good. <laughs> it, it can get messy you know i but. just i don't know for me personally music like has always had its own meaning just the way it sounds has yeah. been one thing and I've always thought it's really pure and then when you add and hey I love lots of bands with great lyrics but for me creating music I always felt like uh, adding lyrics just it how do I say this almost dumbs it down a little I mean it doesn't there's great vocals and great lyrics out there for sure but for me creatively it didn't work because there's something about adding language to it that I feel takes away from how deep or pure of a... How universal yeah, it is otherwise. Yeah, like whatever that expression is. Um, like now it's specific. Yeah, it's specific and there, and it's much, I think, more mundane. Uh, I don't mean mundane as in like shopping for groceries. I mean mundane as in like down to earth. I was going to say, shopping for groceries is extremely exciting for me. (laughs) You like it? Oh, dude, it's the highlight of my week. I haven't shopped for groceries in a long time. (laughs) I hate it. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I absolutely hate it. Yeah, it's (laughs) Having to go to the store for anything, honestly. Instacart, give me a sponsorship, please. Is Amazon delivering groceries yet? They do. In in like larger markets, I think. Not not near us, though. I don't know. Well, do you have a Whole Foods near you? We actually, a Whole Foods just went up near us. Then yeah. you probably will have Amazon delivering. That's right. They have a partnership soon. now. Or they, yeah. Do they own Whole Foods? They do. They do, yeah. I think, yeah. Yeah, so their grocery delivery is Whole Foods. Wow. It's pretty cool. I'm going to have to hook that up. I would. Fuck going. Yeah, seriously. It's such a waste of time. Yeah, I hate going. I hate <laughs> going to the fucking grocery store. Man. I hate anything that just adds time that... I don't feel is a good use of my life. Yeah. And it doesn't just have to be work. Like, it's not that I'm wasting this time not working. It's that I'm just wasting this time. Yeah. Yeah. I could be with my dog or, or something. Dude, I've noticed this at this point. Like, everything shows up at my house now, like, in a box. It's my great. wife orders everything. That's great. Yeah. I love modern life. <laughs> I still go to the grocery store, unfortunately. And there's a robot there. Giant Foods has robots at their stores now. What do the robots like, do? In, like fucking they, get in my way. They move around the store. <laughs> it's, a clean, it's, okay. it's a cleaning it's, okay. robot. Okay, so I think. first oh, of all, robot. these robots are shaped like the fucking monolith from 2001: A Space Odyssey, <laughs> and they have googly eyes on them. It looks like Gumby. And he, yeah, and he has a name tag that says Marty, and he's shaped like a f- the fucking monolith. Is it like Tars from Interstellar? 
Uh, you know the big blocky. Kinda. Robot? He. It's like. It's like. How tall is it? Like seven feet tall. It's horrifying. It's kind of <laughs> and, like and, a and he just, military he just, state type thing. Dude, he just rolls around. I know, and I know like half of the reason he's there is so they can like see what's going on, you know, because there's cameras I think em- all over. employees have been fired from conver- like conversations that it picks up. Well, big that's not surprising, yeah. but he gets, he just gets, in, gets in my way. He is, he's a fucking cop, dude. He like, he just, <laughs> gets, he just gets in my way. Like I go into the grocery cop. store and he's supposed to be there like, I don't know, make shit easier for people. And he just like has sensors so that when anyone gets around him, he just stops and he just sits in the middle of the fucking aisle. <laughs> I'm like, f- move. <laughs> and it, it's, it's not helpful at all. It's terrifying. I've seen children scream at him. Like, I don't know. Like, it has to be a lawsuit waiting to happen. Like, what if like, like what if it runs over someone's foot or some shit? You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, it's all backwards. But so you're not a fan of Marty. No, and... But I see him all the time because I go to the grocery <laughs> store all the time. Sounds <laughs> like you need to try Instacart. I I do. I go to I go to uh to Giant to get my uh my flavored uh seltzer water. I'm on that that whole thing now. That's good. Yeah, sparkling water is the best. I, I'm really down with that shit. I you should get a seltzer. Lacroix. Yeah. Yes. You uh, like that shit? Grapefruit. All right. Yeah, I'm down I've with never, that. I've never actually we call had it, it. We call it spicy water. That's like the worst of the sparkling. I water. know. It's like. The Pabst Blue Ribbon. How do you feel about it Perrier? Uh, in a glass bottle, it's awesome. Yeah, I'm not crazy about the the I'm a sparkling water snob. Uh, plastic bottle is a little weird. It like it. I think because it just doesn't um, stay the right temperature right. long enough. Uh, sparkling water gets really weird the moment it starts to get warm, mm. like it almost undrinkable. So. Yeah. yeah. The glass bottle keeps it colder and therefore better. But something about La, La Croix yeah. or whatever, I definitely think it's like the Pabst. Oh, it, absolu- it absolutely is. Water. It's just there and it's cheap. But um, So being that you're a sparkling water snob, does that, does that mean that while you were touring, you like loved touring in Europe because everything... No, 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 because the thing is in Europe... They like shit room temperature. Yeah. And there's nothing worse than being on stage yep. in like a club that has like eight foot ceilings in the summer. Hell and yeah. you're dying and you see water on stage and you reach over. Warm, to, spark- to warm spicy warm, water. Warm sparkling water Hell when yeah. you're not expecting it. Yep. <laughs> Oof. It's good shit, dude. Might as well drink <laughs> yeah. a cup of piss. Yeah. Yeah. I'd maybe the yeah, healthier or something. It's a hot issue. Tastes better. For sure. The 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 uh spicy water debacle when uh we toured over there recently with Archspire and Revocation, and uh, there was like a pretty clear division uh, between the bands on on Spicy Water. So the thing is, Spicy Water in a can is kind of gross. Yeah, I think it's got to be in a glass bottle, and it's got to be fucking cold. Uh, those are two. Yeah, the carbonation also makes a really big difference. And yeah, the some of these companies they put these weird fla- artificial flavors in them mm-hmm. that just have a weird aftertaste. I don't know. You're giving me a complex. I'm gonna like be thinking about all Voss this shit. Sparkling. Try that. Okay. That's the good shit. I'll ask that's Thorn with the real artsy bottle, right? Yeah, it's Voss? pretty artsy. It's great though. So, I'll ask Marty where it's at. I'm not. I'm not. not There's still. Water. There's still water comes in a plastic bottle. You can find it in a gas station. It's not so good. But yeah. The the black cap. Okay. A glass sparkling. It's like Voss. a single cylinder. Yeah. I think. Yeah. I've seen I'll check it out. Good. I'm intrigued. Speaking of robots, I was in a hotel recently in L.A. I forgot my toiletries somewhere, and I called the front desk to ask if they had some, and they were like, we'll send some right up. And They sent a robot? This, yeah. Uh, 
I got a phone call and it was a robot talking oh. to me saying I'm at your door. That's and I opened it and the robot was at the door with my, with my stuff. That's kind of cool. That is cool. I, I, posted a, I posted a picture of it. because I think I saw that. It yeah. looked a lot friendlier than Marty. Marty yeah, just friendly, looks like growing a fucking my shit. monster. But yeah. it, was a little, it wasn't like a little, like little round, cute thing. or It was like a trash can with wheels. Okay. That's, that's, anything is better than Marty the fucking monolith. Like, <laughs> it's fucked up. I'm going to show you guys a picture of it later. So let, let's talk about mixing yeah. for a second. All right. Sorry. <laughs> really, I want to talk about saxophone. Oh, God. I want to talk about saxophone, too. Yeah, so uh, why? <laughs> Just, I, why? Well, what would you do if you ran out of ideas? Not <laughs> saxophone. <laughs> I don't... Oh, I, I mean, you, you guys pull it, it off. It works, though. I'll give, you, I'll give right? you that. Yeah. It's just, I was telling him that it's like my most hated instrument. Yeah. I fucking hate saxophone. <laughs> and it could be trauma from going to Berkeley, but... Did uh, you play oh. saxophone? No. Oh. Of course not. Um, but uh, of course, I just, I just. Did a saxophone hurt you, Al? <laughs> no. Where, where did the saxophone touch you? I don't know. Point, on, point on the doll. Maybe it, was, maybe it was pretty good. It was so bad. It was My so bad. Joke. I blocked it out. But uh, good. good. But yeah, I don't know. You guys do it all right though. Like thanks. Yeah. So, I don't do it. Uh, but why? Man. Why? I mean, because it's sick. <laughs> Yeah, like, I guess, but... What other reasons? I, but I, it's not a sick instrument. I grew it's sick up, on their shit, though. I grew I, up listening to a lot of music that had it on there, and to me, it just always sounded like something that belonged in music. Uh, I listened to a lot of... My dad... My dad's 66, so like he grew up in the golden age of progressive rock. So my start in music was with King Crimson and Pink Floyd and Yes, and all those bands, and all those bands utilized the saxophone pretty extensively, and it just always sounded... Pink Floyd did it all right. Yeah, Pink yeah. Floyd, uh, David Bowie, he used it quite a bit as well. Like, you know, uh, I don't know, it just always sounded, it always sounded like it belonged in music to me, and I actually played the saxophone for a while, uh, obviously didn't I liked you up until today. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. I'm going to yeah. need a picture of that. I don't know if there are any pictures. Jake played the saxophone too. Really? Yeah. Wow. He played like the baritone sax. I want sax. you guys, I want a picture of you guys playing sax together. There's a picture of Jake with a saxophone and with leg braces because he used to have like a spinal like thing. Like Forrest Gump? Hell yeah. Wow, dude. Yeah, absolutely. Sick. Very sick. And uh, there's a picture of that that does exist, so I'll have to, I'll have to dig that I'm up. I'm going to have to see that one yeah. for sure. I'll, I'll ask him He's for got it. a saxophone in the picture? Pretty sure, yeah. Wow. He's All holding right. it and smiling. Uh, Forrest Gump with a fucking saxophone. <laughs> oh, man. With a, with a lisp. <laughs> that is what... He's never going to watch this, so it's okay that we're okay. talking about this. I love Jim. I love him. But, uh, lisp. yeah, I don't know. It just, it always, it was always an instrument that I enjoyed, and I recorded a local death metal band from our area, many years ago and the bass player in that band or the guitar player in that band Zach Strauss he was going to Westchester University for jazz performance uh, and uh, he was a saxophone player that was his primary instrument and he was like casually just like more or less as a joke he's like hey man hit me up if you ever want me to throw some some sax on a river song or whatever so I was writing these songs for Where Owls Know My Name and just had these big open sections 
where I was like, oh, I guess I can play a really long guitar solo that nobody wants to hear, or we could try something else. So I kind of just sent him what became our song called The Silent Life, and I was like, see what you can do with it. And he sent it back a couple days later, and that's what basically ended up on the record and kind of just rolled with it from there. Uh, we wanted, we kind of wanted to make the sax work with the material, not like when it pops up, like, oh, there's the saxophone part, yeah. um, which I've, I hate. Here's a funny thing that yeah. happens in the song. I hate quirky shit like that, like especially when death metal bands do it, uh, like just like silly shit for the sake of being there. Um, so It's like, not like that with you guys. And if it was, I would have been really weird about having it on. Yeah. But you guys, it's not like that. You guys pull it off. It feels appropriate for the song. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, he, Zach is like, easily the most talented musician that played on our record. I mean, all the stuff that ended up on the album, like I, we stuck a, a Royer 121 in front of his sax and he did all that shit in like one take. Like he's sick. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. We just wanted to make sure that the record or that the sax parts didn't sound forced. Like there were a few parts that we threw out, um, you know, just because they, they sounded too abrupt or whatever. Um, but yeah, I don't know. We just, I guess it was an accident that Sax ended up on the record. I just happened to meet Zach at the right time when I was writing the record and he ended up on the album and I've just kind of always liked the sax. And, um, now I hate the saxophone cause it's ruined my life for the last year. Uh, <laughs> hey, you're in that band with the saxophone, yeah, right? Not, man? not, not actually, but it's funny. Um, Finn McKenty posted something yesterday, um, about, putting a bunch of bands in band prison about, you know, changing their sound or something. And I commented on it. And I was like, you got any room for dumbasses that put saxophone on their death metal records in there in this band prison? And some someone commented on it and was like, are you talking about Rivers of Nile? And I was like, yeah, fuck those guys. And the dude like never caught on. <laughs> like, it's like so stupid how they put a sax on their record. So, but yeah, I mean, definitely, uh, you know, we've become known as the the saxophone band, I guess. So here we here we are. Here we are. Well, what about mixing wise? Uh, isn't it? How did you? I mean, I I know we're going to talk about it on Nail the Mix, but conceptually, mix wise, I feel like sometimes adding acoustic instruments on music like that can go really weird because they can they can just sound really out of place. Yeah. Um, how did you approach getting I'm, it to not stick out? From a technical mix perspective, there's nothing really that special. I, I think it's just like some EQ and um, might have compressed a little bit and there's like some delay in verb, but... Pretty much how you would treat a vocal. Yeah, kind of. Mm -hmm. I mean, it honestly, for me, it's more just the context of what so it's, it's a good doing. arrangement. It's a great arrangement, a great song. It's appropriate for the moment it happens in the song. And on the other songs that it happens in on the, on the album, um, it's just a well-written piece of music. So it's not hard to make sound good in a mix. You mm -hmm. know? I guess that's usually what the problem is when people start throwing in acoustic instruments on this stuff is it's not well-written. It's not and, thought through enough. Yeah, and so yeah, it not ends cooked, up sounding weird. As they say in Australia. Yes, undercooked for sure. <laughs> well, I think this is a good time to stop this. I want to thank you guys for coming on the URM podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's been a pleasure talking to you and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. <laughs> That's been fun. Very much. Sick.
Thank you. Yeah, it's yeah. a great time. Thanks so much. This episode of the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast was brought to you by Sonarworks. Sonarworks is on a mission to ensure everybody hears music the way it was meant to be across all devices. Visit sonarworks.com for more info. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and subscribe today.